0: We're going to be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 21 and various verses. Please give attention as I read from God's Word. This is 15 verses, and there's a lot going on just to set the stage. We're in a series on the life of David, and we're looking and walking through 1 Samuel. From David being called out of the sheepfold as a shepherd boy where he protected the flocks, where he fiercely stood against the lion and the bear and experienced time and time again the Lord's deliverance and the, the Lord being with him to protect the flock. He's been called out onto the battlefield now by to fight Goliath. And once again, this shepherd boy drawing from those experiences, and with the Spirit of the Lord upon him, stands small, ruddy face against Goliath. But he stands again, representing the Lord. He stands in the name of the Lord. And experiences again, by his confidence and trust and faith, he experiences victory. At this point, David is celebrated in all of Israel, And there's a song that goes on the radio that's on the radio like this. Saul, Saul, he's our man. He's slain a thousand if anybody can. David, David, he's the one. Ten thousand. That's a hundred to one. So it's it's David, this young upcoming victor for God, demonstrating the presence of God with him, In Israel that provokes the ire and the envy, the fear, and then murderous attempts on his life from King Saul. So David goes from the sheepfold and the family of Jesse. He goes into the, the battlefield and from the battlefield he goes into the royal palace. And now at this point... It has finally been determined that he is no longer welcome there. That his life is certainly at risk at the hand of Saul. So David, this morning, steps in to exile. He's away from every home that he's ever known. And for the next number of weeks, we're going to see David in exile. Beginning with verse 1. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. Now, Nob is where the tabernacle, the church as it were, is located. And Ahimelech is the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David trembling and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Uh, Side road again. Scholars and commentators look to this and they say, David most certainly lied. Saul did not send him on a mission. But never is David's lie... This is a side road, judged to be a sin at this point. It's it is, as it were, a fabrication or a strategy, being wise as a serpent and yet harmless as dove. That shepherding heart of David comes out that he knows that if he tells a Ahimelech that he's on the run, then Ahimelech's life is forfeit for aiding and abetting. It's much like Corey Timboom when she and her family hid Jewish uh, family members in their home. So that when the Nazi Germans came and knocked on the door and said, are you harboring Jewish family members or children here? They said, no. So, was it a lie? Yes. But was it a sin? No. You think about that. Now then... What do you have on hand? This is verse 3. Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is only holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us as always when I go on expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy, so the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there, but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away i'll say more on this in just a moment, but the bread that it, it's really it really speaks ill of the decline of the church during that day, such that Ahimelech didn't have a storehouse of bread either to feed him or his other staff of priests. But the only bread that they had, and David is, he's just got a very small group of companions with him. And they're off somewhere here nearby. But they have no food. And he's hungry. And for self-preservation, he's asking, he's saying, do you have anything to eat? And Ahimelech is saying, I can by grace, give you bread that is put out weekly. Loaves of bread that are put out that are called the bread of the presence, but that's the Lord's bread. And so I can give you that, but you need to be pure. You need to consecrate yourself. You need to be repentant and coming before the God, even like we, the priests who eat that bread. You can eat it, If you're pure. And he says, our men are pure. Later, in both Matthew and Mark, when Jesus and his disciples are walking through the field, gleaning out of the fields, and the Pharisees come to him and say, you can't do that, it's Sunday. He looks back on this, and he says, was not David right? Was not it a good thing for David to eat from the Lord's table? Better is mercy then the law, in other words, Ahimelech could have been very, very narrow and legalistic, but he did what even the Lord said. There are times that from this table, this table is a table, or the, this table that the bread was on, it wasn't a table of legalistic and religious law as much as it was a table to dispense and communicate mercy from. So the priest gave him that bread. Verse 7, Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah. Behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it. For there is none but that here. And David said, there is none like that. Give it to me. And David rose, and he fled that day from Saul, and he went to Achish, the king of Gath. Now, Akesh, if you were to flip over, and I'm not encouraging you to do that necessarily right now, but if you look in Psalm 56, the heading for Psalm 56, as well as Psalm 34, which we're going to look at this morning, uses the name Abimelech for Akesh. Abimelech is the title father, father king or royal father. It'd be like saying Caesar or emperor president. It's a title. And so sometimes I will use those interchangeably this morning. Achish or Abimelech. So there's a Himalek and there's a Verse 11. And the servants of Achish said to him, is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his tens of thousands. They're listening to the same radio station. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. Gath, back in 1 Samuel 17, you find is where the Philistines' former champion, Goliath, is from. He's their hometown boy. He's their hometown giant. And so Achish is the king of this royal city, Gath, in Philistine. And that's where David was. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen? that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence shall this fellow come into my house run the long way to get there but this is the word of the lord thanks be to god this morning i want you to know that our subject is fear or phobias that's the new testament word for fear phobia phobia And Jesus would often tell his disciples, do not be afraid. Fear not. We find that fear has many synonyms. Fear can be panic. Fear can be anxiety. Fear can be nervousness. Fear has a first cousin that many times it masks itself as worry. It's the thing that we wring our hands over. Or it's the thing that wakes us up at night or keeps us up at night. There are a lot of phobias. I thought that I would share just a few with you this morning. There's a fear of bathing. Hopefully you're not sitting next to somebody like that. Uh, There's a fear of noise. There's a fear of heights, there's a fear of open places, there's a fear of being sexually abused, there's a fear fear of wild animals, there's a whole category of a fear of animals. There's a fear of crossing the street, there's a fear of sharp or pointed objects such as a needle or knife, there's a fear of cats, a fear of dogs. There's a fear of riding in a car, a fear of being scratched, a fear of flowers, a fear of people, a fear of floods. Experienced that last week. Fear of water. Fear of spiders. That's one of the more popular ones. Fear of thunder and lightning. Fear of not being good enough. Fear of failure. Fear of anything that falsely represents a sentient being. That's like a robot or a, an alien. Fear of isolation. Fear of flying. That's just an abbreviated list of the A fears. I'm not giving you the, the Latin or the, the, the title of those fears. That's just the A's. There's the whole remaining 25 letters of the alphabet for the other fears. But I, I drew from some of the others thinking that they might be of interest to you. There's a fear of cemeteries. You know, some people won't go in a graveyard. There are fear of clowns. And it's not restricted just to evil clowns. There's a fear of churches. There's a fear of vomiting. I would be afraid of people vomiting in church, but there's there's a fear of being laughed at. There's a fear of balloons. There's one that I might try to even pronounce. It's the longest listed fear. It's hexa, Conta hexaphobia. Now you heard hexa three times. That's the fear of the number 666. Six, six. And then lastly, there's the fear of fear itself. There's the fear of having a phobia. There's the fear of having any fears. I want to tell you that. Uh, there are a couple of things. One of my favorite fears is the fear of peanut butter, the fear of peanut butter sticking to the roof of your mouth. I mean, what if you can't get it off? So fears, fears of others may seem so small, so unrealistic, and even humorous to us, but they're very, very real to that person everybody in this room this morning has a fear. Have you identified it? It may seem embarrassingly different or funny, but it's real. Everybody has fear, and fear in itself is not sinful. Jesus Christ being the great example, the sinless man, and don't Don't minimize his humanity. He was fully God, but fully human. And in the garden, he experienced fear. So fear in itself is not sinful. But what begins to to morph into sin is fear prompts us to flee. And in that moment of flight and running away, whether it's physically or in our mind or through other means of escape, That fear, where we run, can be sinful. Do we turn away from God in rebellion? God has abandoned me. God is not there. God is too weak. God is too small. Or, and I've got to deal with this myself, or I've got to get others to protect me, or do we turn to God? This morning, we see David, for the first time in our look at the life of David, We see him afraid. And his fear is not a lack of faith. Fear can be looked at in the life of David. And we can learn from where David turns. Where does David turn with his fear? And I want to encourage you this morning. I want to encourage you this morning because I want to be very practical in my application that I'm getting ready to go to here in the time that remains. But this morning, I want you to identify your fear. And I want you to face that fear with a greater fear. I want you to fight fear with capital letter fear. Larger fears drive out smaller fears. And there was someone in David's world and in his view, in his world and life view, that was more fearsome than a lack of bread than life alone and separated in exile, or a life under threat, or a life lived with enemies. There was something that was more fearsome than that. We find that this is true in Psalm 34. How do we know what David was thinking here in this? If you just read this on the surface, it looks like he's very afraid that he he stoops to line. Hey, listen, yeah, yeah, I'm representing uh, Saul. I'm on the king's business. Now give me some bread. Yeah, yeah, my guys are pure. Don't worry about it. Give me that. Hey, yeah, you got a sword. I got to protect myself. God's not watching my back right now. Let me have Goliath's sword. You know, I'm not back with my stones and my sling. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to feign madness just to protect my life. If you just look at the surface, it looks like David has turned with his fears just to himself. And he's compromising. And the problem that fear, fear distorts, fear distorts reality in the sense that the fearful thing in our life begins to be very, very large. It's bigger than us. We become very, very, very small and God, where is he? How do I plug God in to the fear that I'm facing? Does God really care? Perhaps I'm on my own in this. Psalm 34 is helpful to see what's going on behind the scene. The preamble for Psalm 34, that is the the, the, the little cap before you get into the verses are, Of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. So, Psalm 34 is going to be a great tale for us to show us what David is really thinking and experiencing for the three places that he turned to to strengthen his faith in the face of fear. Say three words for me. Now, I'm not trying to either hypnotize you or get you to do something that you don't want to do, but it'll be helpful to me to be able to Focus my time that remains. Say three words. The word uh, taste, taste, see, boast. All right, let's say it again. Taste, see, boast. One of those words, if not all three, I want you to walk away with today. When we conclude the worship service by passing the peace and go on to the chili cookout. One of cook-off. One of those words, I want you to put into play in your life. David turned with his fear to three places and we can learn from those quickly. The first place that he turned to in his fear was the show bread. That bread that that would be on the communion table itself. That bread that represented God's communing, God's presence in that place, in that house, the tabernacle, so that the people could go there and they could meet with God through the priest. In other words, going into that tabernacle and eating that bread was the same as going to God's home, come in, I'm hungry, God. will not only come in and eat, but come in and eat with me. Thomas Brooks, the Puritan, wrote a book that's worth the title alone. It's called Precious Remedies for Satan's Devices. And one of the most precious remedies that he says when you are made to feel fearful or you are opposed or you're oppressed by Satan is communion with God. He says the word communion has the word union in it. And it's like Jacob's ladder, such that Jacob's ladder going into the heavens so that God can come down and draw very near And we can come up who are afar and draw very near to God. That's what David was doing with that showbread. David could not take of that bread and say, oh, this is the same as regular bread. What David could do is with every morsel, with every mouth, with every bite that he would take, he could say, God is with me and I am with God. Yes, I have my fears, and yes, I'm out in exile, but I'm not alone. I have God with me. It's a terrible thing to face fears and feel that God is very far. It's a totally different matter to face our fears, and God is very close. Taste, he says. Taste. Psalm 34 Verses 8 through 10. O oh, taste and see. Now remember, Psalm 34 is written during this time. It tells us that. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. We read in Psalm 51 verse 11, we read one of David's biggest fears is separation from God's spirit. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. True fear for David was to not have spiritual intimacy, and communion with God. And by the very bread of the presence in his hand, in his mouth, and in his stomach, he was able to take great comfort and be at peace. Fear still remaining, but saying, me and God are in relationship. And that one of peace. Do you taste of God... On a daily basis, what does your communion with God look like? What do you, what does your Psalm thirty-four verses eight through ten look like? You're tasting, you're experiencing God as a refuge in the storm, intimacy with God. Secondly, David not only turned to the showbread. But also, David turned to the sword of Goliath. Now, this sword that was there would have been like none other. In Psalm 34, verses 4 through 7, David writes, O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and delivered me from all my fears." The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Ahimelech, the priest, in response to David's inquiry for a weapon, says, Well, you know, we do have we do have one. I mean we don't have any here. There's only there's only this, and notice how he uses the word none. He says, if you'll take that, take it, for there's none but that here. In other words, if you want it, you can take it, but other than that, there's nothing. Why would a say that? A would say that because the sword of Goliath, unlike William Wallace's broadsword that he could pull from his back and begin to lob off heads, the lion's sword would have been very unwieldy in battle. And David, at this point, is much more experienced in battle. He is beyond simply a sling and a stone. But he himself would not be able to wield this huge sword. It would be very cumbersome in battle. And that's why Ahimelech is saying, I've got one, but... It's a little bit big for anybody but a giant. But David says, there's none like that. That's exactly what I need. Was David saying that because he said, hey, Ahimelech, I know something you don't. I'm such a skilled warrior, I can fight with it. No. What David saw in that was a visual object that whenever he saw that sword, taste, see, boast... Whenever he looked at that sword, he would reflect and he would remember God's victory on the battlefield that day. He would remember that it was not by might, it was not by his strength, but it was by the power of God's Spirit that he slew Goliath. And that it would not be by his might and by his strength and his battle prowess, his skill, and his abilities to fight his fears. But he could look and say, though fears still remain and are before me, God has been, not only is God with me now, but I have no evidence in my past where God has ever failed me. And one look at that sword would inspire him to that confidence again. Tony Reinke In his book on uh, John Newton, the hymn writer and preacher at Gadsby, says in his book Newton on the Christian Life that John Newton was known more for his letter writing and his correspondence as a pastor than he was for his sermons. We have very, very few written sermons, but we have a huge volume of his letters that he wrote to other people. And as he wrote to other people, he would tell them that they needed to have an imagination of Jesus Christ. Now bear with me. He said, the eyes of your mind need to move to a Jesus-inspired imagination if you would be comforted. And he gives us examples of this. Tony Ranke uh, shares out of one letter, he says, I would have you to look unto the Lord Jesus Christ. Look unto him as he hung naked, wounded, bleeding, dead, and forsaken upon the cross. Can you see that? Don't excuse this. Don't. Don't poo-poo imagination. Use your imagination sanctified to see your Savior, see your Lord hanging on that cross. See Him. Look unto Him again as He now reigns in glory, possessed all power in heaven and earth, with thousands and thousands of saints and angels worshiping before Him, and ten thousand times ten thousand ministering unto Him. Can you see it? Tony Reichen writes this, Newton had the ability to fire the eyes of the mind to see Jesus that would comfort people in their fear. He would walk a lady to Golgotha to see the universe of suffering on Christ's soldier. Then he would bid her to raise her eyes and see his bloodied face sagging, suffering, Savior, bearing the awful weight of her sin. Then he will lead her to a dusty tomb where Christ is no longer. And then a little later, he would point her eyes up and through the clouds where her Lord sits, watching, waiting with a promise of no more trials, no more pains to hinder the Christian's ultimate and eternal happiness With such pictures, Newton would show her Christ who sovereignly orchestrates all of our trials for His own glory and our ultimate happiness. Folks, if you had that sword in your hand, if you have this sword, God's Word, if you grasp this, if you can see, if you can see Jesus Christ, and what He has done and is doing for us, you can't have fear. If you can see it, even as David could see it, then you could take that bread in one hand, that sword in the other hand, and you could leave church and face the world and the fears that await you out there. And David does. David then does something that many seem to be greatly bothered by. He goes to an enemy that would rival Saul. Some believe that Abimelech would be an even greater threat and enemy to David. Why does he go there? I don't believe that he went there because he was continuing to to run and run and run. I'm afraid, I'm panicked, and he makes a crazy, insane decision. Scripture says that he didn't experience fear there until he saw that he would not be welcomed there. That's when he experienced a concern for Achish or Abimelech. David, with this bread in one hand, God is with me. The sword in the other. God has always been with me. God has been there in the past when I faced Goliath. He then says, I'm going to move forward in the world. I'm going to go. I've been a soldier. That was, that's my gift set. I have been victorious in battle. Like a mercenary, I'm going to go to the king and say, I'm a fighter. You got any enemies? They are probably yet enemies of the Lord. I will fight them as well. As he stands before the Philistines, though, we can only imagine that they would come up and they would say, "Uh, wait a minute, David, you know this is Goliath's hometown? And by the way, this huge sword that you're dragging around, that that is just like gasoline on a fire inflaming us because you're just waving around this token of God's victory to us, the people that were defeated that day in mass and number, you're nuts! You're crazy! Do you know what you're doing? You are nuts! Psalm 56, the preamble to Psalm 56, tells us, or excuse me, Psalm 57, tells us, wrong, Psalm 56, the preamble, tells us, A victim of David, when the Philistines seized him in Gath, So they would have actually taken hold of him. We don't know that they would have put him either in prison or a dungeon, maybe house arrest, maybe the stocks. But at this point, David is very, very humbled. And at this point, I believe David, it's not that he is saying, okay, you think I'm crazy? Then I'll just ride that as a strategy of war. I believe David would say, okay, I'm not going to argue against that. You think I'm crazy? Fine. But I'm a fool for God. I'm willing to let my beard, I'm willing to let the slobber go in my beard, I'm willing to be disheveled, I'm willing to seem to you like a crazy man. But my boast, is in the Lord. My boast is in the Lord. Psalm 36 again. Or excuse me, Psalm 34. Psalm 34, he says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes this boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt His name together. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Charles Spurgeon says that he understands when David writes this in Psalm 34, that he may very well have been walking around with all the appearance of a madman, dragging around this huge sword of Goliath, beard unkempt, going up to doorways or to posts and making these markings and these scribblings on the wall. And Charles Spurgeon said that his appearance was such that even small children would find him crazy and harmless and they would follow him and they would laugh at him, perhaps even throw things at him. And he would turn to the children and he'd say, children, can I teach you something? He would make his boast to all that might gather around to laugh at him. He was willing to appear foolish. He was utterly humbled in the camp of his enemy, but it was in the camp of his fears and his enemies that he made his boast. What was he writing on the wall? Nobody knows. They don't know what he was scribbling on the wall any more than what Jesus wrote in the sand in the, before the adulterous woman. You remember the story. This woman is brought out of an act of adultery, caught in the act, brought by those legalists and other members of the community, brought before Jesus and said, all right, judge her according to the law. Jesus dismissed her when no one without sin was found in order to judge her. And he told her, go and sin no more. But prior to that, it says that Jesus stooped down and he wrote something in the sand. Something in the sand that perhaps gave her great comfort, but it put his enemies, as it were, the legalists, to flight. Psalm 34 is an acrostic. That means it's the Hebrew alphabet. Every verse is like A, I will magnify the Lord. B, I make my boast in the Lord. C, the Lord is with me. D, all those that cry out to the Lord. Humble, hear this. When you cry out, God hears you. E, I look to the Lord. This poor man called and he got an answer. F, my face was radiant. It goes down and down. What if? What if? What he scribbled on those posts was A, D, C. It's the acrostic so that he is rehearsing, he is rehearsing that the Lord is with me, the Lord has been with me, the Lord will be with me in the future. Past, present, future, and I boast about it. I brag about it. There is no God like that. And so as he's writing this, perhaps he can expand it, perhaps he can explain it in all of his humility, but it would certainly Be His boast. Now some of you are looking at me like I'm crazy. But try this. In the face of your fears, ask yourself, what is my life of intimate union and communion with God like? Am I regularly tasting that He is good? And He is with me? That because of the peace made on the cross, He is my God. And I am His child. And greatly loved. Not abandoned, I am. Are you tasting that? Are you tasting it? Are you seeing it? Do you have something that at a glance, when you see it, then you're flooded. You're flooded with faith and joy that sets your fears to flight. Are you taking time to regularly meditate and say, Lord, by the power of your Spirit, take me to Golgotha? Not just for a history lesson alone, but let me see this one bloodied and bruised dying for me, and not reluctantly, but with joy. Let me see an empty grave, the conqueror of all fears. Let me see him in heaven awaiting. Are you seeing those things? When you look at this table, can you see it? And then lastly, where are you boasting? You'll know you're boasting on the Lord. You'll know because your family or your friends or in the workplace or in the classroom, in your world outside of Christian community, they'll begin to think two things. Number one, they'll think you're crazy. They will. Small or large, you're going to think you're crazy when you make your boast in the Lord or you begin to magnify Him, make Him bigger than anything else in your life. And number two, it's going to be humbling. It's going to be humbling. You're not going to be the star. You're not going to be the one that everybody says, yeah, that's right, preach it, brother. You're liable to be very humbled, But God lifts at that moment. God lifts the fears. Why? Because we are fighting our small fears with one that we are boasting that there is no God like this fearsome, awesome God who is mine. Let's pray. Father, I want to taste you in this table this morning. I want to taste the reality of intimacy, of communion with you. I want to taste... The peace that is mine with with God, with Jesus. Father, I want to taste my forgiveness in this broken bread and this poured out cup. And I want to see as I handle the bread and I take it, I want to see that there was once a body that was broken so that mine does not have to be beat up and broken. There was once blood shed so that mine does not have to shed. And then, Father... I want to leave this place with a boast that there is no God like my God, and He is my God. To this end we pray, Christ. Amen.